Hello, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the Disorder Podcast, where we talk about all things related to eating disorder recovery and body image. If you're new here, my name is Jamie, and I'm so excited because today we are officially kicking off the Body Image Perspective series. Our first guest is Sabrina, who is an ex-synchronized swimmer, among many other things. So without further ado, I'll let Sabrina introduce herself. So go ahead and take it away. Hi. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast, especially during your body image series, because this is something that I struggled with for a really long time. As you mentioned, I am an ex-synchronized swimmer turned um, holistic health coach and intuitive eating coach because of my own struggles when it came to body dysmorphia and and hating my body and what eventually turned into binge eating, emotional eating, and a full-blown eating disorder called orthorexia. So I have my own history when it comes to food and body struggles, and I absolutely know what it's like to live in that mental food and body prison. So I made it my mission to make sure that no one else gets stuck in diet culture the way that I did and helping someone see a different perspective to approaching health and nutrition in a way that is compassionate and from a true place of self-care, not punishment and guilt and shame. Yes. And I love that. that That's the approach you have going into starting your own podcast and helping others through everything you do. And I know that you mentioned that you also struggled with orthorexia, which is one of the biggest eating disorders I struggled with in my journey. And I was just curious, how did you kind of figure out that that was something you struggled with? Because I know orthorexia is one of the lesser known disorders and it's not really talked about as much as anorexia or binge eating disorder. Yeah. And orthorexia, especially when we talk in terms of diet culture, it's almost, it's, it, we inhibit behaviors that are normalized by society and almost encouraged. And so it's a really interesting question on how I realized that I was struggling with a full-blown eating disorder. And the truth is that at the time, I didn't realize that I had an eating disorder. And it was really only after my entire healing journey when I started my own career and I started going a guest on other people's podcasts and talking about my story, something that I was so hesitant to talk about before because there was a lot of guilt and shame wrapped up into it. No one was talking about their struggles with food. I thought that there was something wrong with me. But when I started my business, there was like this really scary moment realizing I need to talk about my personal story because that is the reason why I'm here today. So I remember being on people's podcasts and they were asking me like, how did you get to do what you're doing now? And it was looking back on my history with synchronized swimming and how it affected my body image and my relationship with food and kind of really looking at what led to the binge eating and the really unhealthy obsession with being healthy, which is what orthorexia is that I started realizing and I started hearing about orthorexia and I like put those dots together of, oh my God, at that time I had a full-blown eating disorder. But when this was all happening, I was in university and I remember knowing there's something seriously wrong with the way that I relate to food and my body. I would look at my friends and they just seemed to be able to have a piece of pizza and not worry about the calories in it. And I used to look at people and think, is like, how do they do that? How do they act so normally around food? 
And there was a, a point where I remember I had stayed home on a Friday night because all my friends were going out to a restaurant and I was so anxious about going out to a restaurant at that point. Like I didn't know what was going to be in my food and I needed to know all the ingredients and the calorie count. And I remember staying home and being so depressed and so isolated and booking an appointment with my university therapist being like, I don't know what's going on with me, but I know that I need help. And I couldn't do it on my own because you know as much as I do that an eating disorder is super controlling. And so even if you know that you need to stop the behaviors, the calorie counting, the overexercising, the step counting, you know that you need to stop, it almost causes more anxiety to stop the behaviors. So I would book an appointment with the school therapist and then it would be like two weeks away. And then a few days leading up to it, I would cancel my appointment because I'd be like, I'm not bad enough. I'm not sick enough. And I did this like repeatedly throughout my university days. So I never actually got the help that I needed because I didn't look like the typical eating disorder. I wasn't, no one would look at me and think, oh, she's not eating enough or she's underweight. I was underweight for my body type. Absolutely. But I didn't think I warranted the help and the support. And I was almost scared to be labeled as someone who has an eating disorder. Yes. And I think that last part that you hit on is huge. I think people who are struggling, especially with orthorexia, they feel like they kind of have this narrative where they're not sick enough to be constituted to have an eating disorder, which makes it even harder to get help because you kind of feel like, oh, I'm just being dramatic. It's not It's not as bad as maybe anorexia or the ones where it's a lot more physically present to others. But I think that is huge. And just kind of taking that initial step where you realize that other people are living life so much differently than you and that you could be living like that if you just kind of take that leap and, and get help. And what's really scary about orthorexia too is you end up convincing yourself that what you're doing has good intentions because all of it is driven by quote unquote health. You just want to be healthy. And I don't know if you ever experienced this, but back at the time, I would look down on people who would like use normal flour instead of almond flour or coconut flour. I would look down on people who used sugar instead of maple syrup or honey. And there's this sense of like superiority that you're, you're superior because you care about your health so much that you won't eat anything processed. And in that, like, especially you're reinforced by what you see on social media. So you're reinforced that sugar is toxic and that you have like this moral high ground if you care about your health so much, but it ends up taking over your entire life. Yes. Yes. And I think the social media aspect is huge. Also, just seeing those videos of people's what I eat in a day or just even their vlogs throughout the day. And they're just showing like the most unprocessed food, whole foods, maple syrup, no sugar added, no fats. And exactly. It just kind of confirms your orthorexia thoughts where you're saying, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just being healthy. Mm -hmm. But exactly. It's something that is just hurting you more than you realize because you're just constantly validated through social media. Absolutely. But kind of going into your synchronized swimming background, do you feel like early on with your time as a synchronized swimmer that you knew that there was this expected 
body standard and kind of talk me through what that was like growing up with that. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is when you're that young, so I started synchronized swimming when I was like seven, eight years old. And those are your formative years. I did it from eight until 16. And when you're that young, you don't question what you're being taught because it's all you know. And so you're never like you're not super introspective. You're not super aware. You're not able to question your thoughts. And so it really happened on a subconscious level, like forming this belief around bodies and what they're supposed to look like. If you've ever looked at synchronized swimmers, it's really similar to ballet dancers or gymnasts. We're in a bathing suit, half naked for the entire time. And we're also being judged by other people. It's not like soccer where you either score or you don't. It's super, super subjective. It's based on people's opinions. And so what we would see in the sport is that some people who were extremely talented, but didn't have the quote unquote body type that you would normally expect. So like six foot tall and thigh gaps and super, super long legs, they would they would end up doing less good and performing less well than those those girls who had the perfect body type but maybe didn't have the same skills. And so and you would you would really see that in the people who made like national teams and the Olympic teams. And so it it really gets driven and conditioned within us without really thinking about it that your worth as an athlete is determined by the way that your body looks. And I remember there was like this, there was this common thing that people would talk about when people, when, when swimmers stop and retire the sport, which is that a lot of them, a lot of us would gain weight because you go from training 20 to 25 hours a week to navigating a world of physical activity and navigating a world of nutrition that you never really had to worry about growing up because you could eat whatever you want and you were training so often that your body looked a certain way naturally. And when you retire from the sport, you start growing into your adult body, like your natural body. And there was such a stigma against the the swimmers who had gained so much weight and it was almost expected and I remember my last year of the sport, I told myself, you're not going to be one of those swimmers that gains a bunch of weight. I was so afraid of it. And my sister had made a comment being like, if you keep eating the way that you're eating now, you're going to gain a bunch of weight when you stop swimming. And so for me, in my mind, gaining weight was the worst thing in the world. You're losing your value. You're losing your worth. You're not going to be worth anything. So of course, I had so much anxiety around my body when I left the sport because I thought you have to do anything to maintain the body that you had growing up. Yeah. And I think that finding your worth in your weight and being afraid of gaining weight is just a huge part Mm -hmm. of that. Especially I relate to a lot of the stuff you're saying, being a ballet dancer growing up. and, And that was kind of where I really developed majority of my eating issues and just being afraid of gaining weight was the thing that just sent me over the edge. And so how did you kind of come to terms with that once you did stop swimming and 
and kind of accept that your body is changing? Oh, it took years. It took years. So when I first retired from the sport, there was a couple of years of an identity crisis because I was no longer an athlete. And so that was really hard for me. And trying to figure out how to move my body in a way that I enjoyed. But at the time, it wasn't about moving my body. It's what kind of exercise can I do to maintain my weight? And how am I supposed to eat in order to maintain my weight? So for a couple of years, it was spending two hours at the gym and running half marathons because in my mind, running would burn the most calories. And it was jumping from one fad diet to another. So doing low carb and doing paleo. And my the one that I really stuck to consistently was counting calories and doing 1200 calories and for those years, because I was restricting so much, I was also binging because we know that pendulum. So you're restricting from Monday to Friday, and then I would binge on the weekends. Or I would restrict during the day, and I would binge at night once everyone had gone to bed. And I like had this identity as the healthy person because no one would ever see me eating carbs or eating anything, quote unquote, unhealthy unless I was alone. And so for a couple of years, there really was just like being at war with my body constantly thinking that if I can just lose weight, then I'll feel good about myself. And eventually this was like years of binge eating and restricting. And then I got to university and things kind of took a turn because then it really became about control. And and this is this is often the case when it comes to eating disorders. It's like a big change in your life that makes you feel very destabilized. And so for me, there was that need to control something in an environment where I was living on my own for the first time. I moved cities for the first time. I had to create a whole new life. And I also, this it sounds so silly, but a huge contributor to me developing orthorexia was getting a Fitbit. Because now, not only was I counting calories in my fitness pal, but I was also able to see exactly how many calories I was burning on a daily basis. And so it became about, okay, how do I burn more calories than I'm eating? How do I get more steps in? And how do I go to the gym more? And so this, like what started off as restricting and binging, turned into this obsession with controlling my weight and controlling my calories. And it was reinforced because I was losing weight. And then I would go home for the weekend back to Montreal and people would make comments about how I'm losing weight. And then it was like, okay, then what I'm doing is good and keep going. And you know, as much as I do that any comment about weight loss in in your mind goes, I'm losing weight and people are noticing, therefore I'm becoming more valuable in the society. Yes. And I I think the comments are just something that make it a thousand times harder. And for me personally, even after my recovery with my eating disorder, I started having severe anxiety, which also just by design, the result of that is a lot of times you lose weight because with the anxiety, you have a hard time eating. And so post-eating disorder recovery, I lost weight. And the comments started coming in again of people being like, you know, you look great. What did you do? Like, what have you been doing? But it's like, I was dealing with the eating disorder, 
didn't really look like it. And then once I started losing weight, the comments started coming in. So I felt like I was kind of relapsing on that eating disorder. And I almost felt guilty, even though I was still recovering, but just because I was still losing weight. So it didn't feel like I was fully recovered. So how did you kind of come to terms with those comments and and not let them kind of get in your head? Yeah, so they definitely did get in my head. And I would say that I struggled with that part of my eating disorder for one to two years. And it got to a point where I definitely hit my rock bottom, where I was thinking about um, I was the summer that was coming up, I was going to have a free summer. And I had always wanted to travel like that was a big value of mine was traveling. And I had a free summer and I was like, this is your chance to go to Italy. Like I had always wanted to go to Italy. That was the country that was like on my bucket list. And so I was like, I really want to go to Italy. And in the back of my mind, I had the fear of going and having to eat carbs and having to eat cheese and gelato and not being able to control my food and gaining weight. And there was so much anxiety that would build up in my body when I thought about going and not being able to track everything that I was eating. And as I was kind of going through this anxiety and realizing the impact of the fear of weight gain and how it would not only impact the summer that I wanted to have traveling, but in my mind, I realized if I don't fix this now, if I don't figure out whatever the hell is going on in my mind, I'm never going to be able to live the life that I want to, because if it's stopping me now, it's going to stop me a year from now. And I'm never going to be able to have a normal relationship where I can go out for dinner and be spontaneous and go for ice cream. And it was like this initial moment that made me realize that it's not just this one trip that it's impacting. If you don't figure this out now and you keep just delaying this and saying it's okay, then it's going to keep happening. So I decided to book the trip, even though I was terrified. And I went and I was living in a Italian family's. I was a nanny. And when I got there, the nanny looked at me, uh, the grandma looked at me and she was like, oh my God, you're so skinny. Let me get you some food. And instantly I was like, I've made such a mistake. Like I am, this is not going to be good. And that summer... I was exposed. It was like exposure therapy. I was exposed to eating other people's foods and I couldn't possibly look at the calories in food and look at the ingredients and have as much control as I would back home. And what was interesting about that summer is I was exposed to Italian culture. They don't talk about calories. They don't talk about dieting. Like they have a relationship with food that is about using it as connection, as enjoyment. They don't eat 15 minutes rush between meetings. They have like hour long lunches and you're there and you're taking your time and you're being mindful. And I noticed that as I was starting to eat more carbs and eat enough I felt much better and I felt happier and I had less anxiety and I felt healthier. And that was like the seed that was planted for me of there is a different way to approach food. And what you were doing before, it wasn't healthy. This is what like mental and physical health feels like. And it didn't happen overnight. And it wasn't just that one trip that healed me. 
but it planted the seed. And so when I came back to Canada, I was like, I want to maintain what I learned there. So I really like I tried to change my environment. I started eating more carbs. I started buying more snacks. And this was definitely something that ebbed and flowed because I didn't get any professional support. I was really like I didn't know what intuitive eating was. I was doing it on my own. Like I was doing intuitive eating without knowing I was doing intuitive eating. And over time, my relationship with food improved and it got much more peaceful and I allowed my body to change. And I realized that your body image and the way that you feel about your body actually has nothing to do with what your body looks like. Because I was smaller before when I had my eating disorder and I hated my body more than I ever had. So allowing myself to change my thoughts about my body instead of trying to change my body was huge. Yeah. And and it's funny because hearing you say that story, I feel like we are the exact <laughs> same person and have lived the same life because I was an au pair in Spain for No way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, which is it's so crazy because Everything you said to a T was my exact same experience. I went in with it with a lot of anxiety and fear because of the way that they eat. Got there immediately. They said I was very skinny (laughs) and kept giving me food. And it was terrifying for me because it exactly, it was exactly like exposure therapy where they place things in front of you and, and that's what you were eating. You couldn't look at the calories at the back of the menu. You couldn't look at the ingredients because that's just not how they live. They lived as food being a communication method, a way to enjoy each other and be with each other. And it really did give me an entirely new perspective on food in general. And so when I did come back to the States, I really wanted to just kind of carry that over and bring that here. And again, like you said, it ebbs and flows. And I just recently went back to visit my old host family this past week, I want to say, beginning of July. And it felt like I was starting from phase one again when I got there, kind of not realizing that I had kind of slipped into old habits before I had gone back. And it wasn't until I got there where they were giving me the food again, where I was like, okay, maybe I did slip back into my old thoughts. And so it kind of helps give you a wake up call by seeing just how other people live and comparing it to what you're thinking. Because a lot of times, and I don't know if you feel this way too, I feel like sometimes I'll tell myself that, oh, this isn't this isn't slipping into old habits. Like I'm just trying to be healthy right now or whatever. But a lot of times the stuff that I'll tell myself almost is just an excuse to have more control over my food. So do you kind of find it that even now still you have moments where you find yourself slipping into old habits or having those old thoughts? That is such a good question. And what I explain to my clients when I'm working with them is I think the reason why I am able to coach them through their current thoughts so well is because when you've had an eating disorder, the thoughts never really go away. You just learn to be aware of them and you learn to reframe them more. So I would say that it the thoughts can still occur. So for example, like I'll take an example right now because I've got my coffee right in front of me. So when I had my eating disorder, only black coffee, right? 
only black coffee. You don't put any milk. And even still now, as I'm about to drink coffee, there's that initial thought of have the black coffee as little calories as possible. But they don't have the same effect on me anymore because you don't act on them. So I'm able to see, oh, this is an old eating disorder thought. And what I really encourage when it comes to these kind of thoughts is not to see it as, oh my God, I'm slipping back. And just acknowledging that, of course, you're still going to have these thoughts. Like you went through years of thinking this way. And so, of course, they're still going to be there. And you can almost just laugh at it and say, oh yeah, that's an old thought. No, I will have milk in my coffee. No, I will have sugar in my coffee. And I think that when it comes to those kind of thoughts, what's the most important thing is to not act on them. Because if you do act on them, then you're reinforcing the compulsions because then you're like, okay, well, I'm controlling the thought. And then the thoughts come up again and then you act on them. And then it really does become that cycle. So the the biggest piece I would say is number one, becoming aware that they're happening. So we do a lot of thought work in my program with my clients to learn to be aware because like we were talking in the beginning, all of these thoughts happening on a subconscious level. Like we're not aware that we're having these thoughts until we slow down and ask ourselves, I'm feeling really anxious or I'm feeling really obsessive. What thoughts am I having that are causing me to feel this way? And then once you can bring those thoughts back to the surface, you can start working through them and decide, do I want to keep thinking this way? What's a better thought that I would rather have? So I know that this is about body image and you're doing a body image series. So on bad body image days, of course I look in the mirror and I'm like, I don't love my body today. Like we all have days where we aren't going to love our bodies. And on those days, one of the body image mantras that I always tell myself to bring myself back to the present, because in the past, my body image really revolved around no one's going to love you if you gain weight, right? And, And that's far from true because I lost friends when I gained weight because I was a shell of a human being. So when I see myself in my body and I maybe don't like it, then I can just pause and say, no one, your value is not in the way that your body looks. No one loves you more or less depending on how much you weigh or what you look like. And actually, I'm able to see how much I have gained ever since gaining weight, the the life that I've gained, how much more authentic I show up in the world and how much I can help people. And so I'm able to work through those thoughts and they just, they pop up and then right away, it's kind of like meditation. I don't know if you ever meditate, but like you're able to have a thought pop up and then you can kind of just let it slip away and bring yourself back to the present. Yeah. I think that's such good advice, just allowing yourself to still have those thoughts. Because I think that's something a lot of people don't realize when they're in recovery is that it's still okay to have those thoughts. And I think even myself, when I was going through recovery, and and obviously recovery is an ongoing process. There's no real end to it where you're just completely healed and you're mm-hmm. done. And so just realizing that you are going to have those thoughts and it's okay and you can work with them and and let them slip. And like you said, just not acting on it. That is the best advice ever. Yeah, and I think it's important to set those expectations too because if you have an expectation that once I start recovering that I'm just never going to have those thoughts, then you're going to feel like you're not making progress. You're going to feel like, oh, well, I'm not 
quote unquote there yet. I haven't hit the finish line because those thoughts are still there. No, this is going to take years of undoing. And especially when it comes to food rules, when you have an eating disorder, you have so many food rules. And so if you're working with a professional, they're going to help you work through them progressively. But for example, like my coffee food rule, I only realized it was a food rule a couple of months ago. And I had I had milk in my coffee and I realized I never drink milk in my coffee and it's because I was so used to drinking it black and I actually really like having milk in my coffee. And this was like years after having developed a healthy relationship with food. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of orthorexia is almost tricking yourself into thinking you either don't like certain foods or you like certain foods that are maybe healthier. And I just remember when I was dealing with orthorexia, I would tell myself, oh, I like you know, even with your coffee example, I like when coffee doesn't have sugar in it. I like the taste of it better. I don't like it when it has syrup in it. And then once I recovered, I realized, wait, I actually love that. But again, it it took a while for me to get to the point where I realized, no, I've just been telling myself that because I was thinking of the calories and not the taste. Yeah. And, and I think that's super important too, because you get to, you're always like convincing yourself that you like certain things. Oh, I like this healthified version of a dessert. And at the same time, you can, for example, I like croissants. I like a good, like chocolate stuff croissants. However, I can acknowledge that I like the taste while also acknowledging that I don't like the way it makes me feel if all I have is a croissant for breakfast because I will have a sugar crash and I will feel lethargic. And that's just me personally. So acknowledging what you do enjoy, the types of foods that you do enjoy while also, and that's part of intuitive eating, while also merging the knowledge of how it makes you feel. And you get to decide, do I want to have this food knowing that I might have a lower energy and it might follow me for the rest of the day to eat this way. And when you can take your power back when it comes to food, you get to make those decisions without the guilt and the shame associated to it. Yes. And I think that is a huge part of recovery is just learning how foods actually affect you and your body and learning that there are going to be foods that don't make you feel as energized or whatever it is. And that's, that's just how food works. But instead of just constantly force feeding yourself the healthy version of stuff and not really having that intuition with how your body's feeling as a result of them, because you kind of shut off all cues and just learning what food does to your body is just honestly has been one of the best parts of recovery is learning that wow, okay, yeah, if I eat just a chocolate bar in the morning, I really feel sick by the time lunch comes around. So I I still love chocolate. I'm still allowed to eat it. But maybe knowing that I might have something different for breakfast. Yeah. And and allowing yourself to be patient, because especially at the beginning, when you're when you're learning to make peace with food, you're reintroducing these foods. And so they might be more exciting for you. And there's going to be that adjustment period where you're getting habituated to those foods again. So if you crave them more, if you're eating them at weird times, if you're noticing that they make your body feel crappy at the beginning, that's all part of it. Because you 
you need to make peace with food. You need to be able to include all of these foods into your life without guilt, without shame and anxiety to be able to start noticing, oh, okay, now that I know that I can have all these foods and they're not scary, what do I want to choose to have? Like those foods are not getting taken away. So how can I both honor my cravings while also honoring my body? And you end up making choices most of the time that feel really good to you because that's what you want to do. You want to thrive. Right. Yes. And and also sometimes you maybe make choices that affect your body in maybe not the best way, but it is exactly just a learning process and knowing what works best for mm-hmm. you. Well, thank you so much for everything. I've learned so much in the past 30 minutes, but just kind of wrapping up, For all of our guests throughout this series, at the end, I would love to ask if you could give yourself any piece of advice, your current self going to when you were in the peak of your eating disorder. If you could give yourself any advice, what would it be? The first thing that popped to my mind is do the uncomfortable thing because recovery and ditching diet culture or whatever you need to do it's not going to feel exciting. It's not going to feel comfortable. And you and I both know when we booked that trip to go to Italy, there was a lot of anxiety involved. But it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know that you need to do it. And and growth happens outside of your comfort zone. So if you notice that you currently have a relationship with food or with your body that is complicated and that is affecting the quality of your life, the quality of your relationships, the kind of role model that you're being for your kids, however it's affecting your life in a way that's detrimental, these things don't get fixed without the conscious and intentional effort of doing the uncomfortable thing and going against the compulsions in your mind. So do the uncomfortable thing. It will feel uncomfortable at the beginning. Absolutely. And lean into that discomfort, knowing that on the other side of it, there is an entirely different life that is so worth going after. Yes. I love that advice. I think that is perfect advice to give to someone who's struggling with eating disorders or disordered eating thoughts. Just going against what your brain is telling you is the best part to start the journey of recovery. Well, thank you so much again for everything. I will have Sabrina's socials linked in the description of this episode, as well as posted on the Instagram, which is at disordered podcast with two T's at the end. And that is all for me today. Thank you again, Sabrina. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for having me.